nothing we can do about the collective stupidity of government other than figure out how to exploit it. This is an economy of one. Your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. The market no longer is the invisible hand of mutual gain, but the choking grip of political self-interest. Liberty is not given. It must be taken. Let's take it back together today. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An economy of one with Gary Rathman, CEO of Private Wealth Consultants and your free market voice of the U.S. This is our country. Good evening and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Our website, aneconomyofone.com, aneconomyofone.com. Joining me now is Ilya Shapiro. He's a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He's provided testimony to Congress and state legislators, and he's coordinator of Cato's amicus brief program. He has filed more than 100 friend-of-the-court briefs in the Supreme Court. I guess the 800-pound gorilla in the room I want to talk about first is uh, naming Judge Neil Gorsuch as a Supreme Court nominee. You've written several columns recently. Uh, about your opinion of the uh, judge. Uh, what do you think of him on the Supreme Court? I think it was a great pick. Um, he is uh, has all of the qualities that made uh, Justice Scalia such a legendary figure, his dedication to the original meaning of the Constitution and to the text of statutes, his uh, erudition. He has a Ph.D. in legal philosophy from Oxford, um, but also uh, none of the rough edges that, that Scalia had, none of the kind of acerbic flourishes. Uh, he, he writes in a way that's engaging and accessible, and he's very collegial, well-regarded by uh, everyone he's ever worked with, and, and uh, there, there have been endorsements in the New York Times by, by former leading uh, Obama lawyers. Um, it's, it's very hard to uh, attack him personally, and that's why you've seen uh, to the extent the uh, Democrats are, are, are opposing, uh, it's on the basis of uh, that Merrick Garland should be in that seat and that this is not uh, legitimate for uh, Donald Trump to fill the vacancy. Yeah, you know, one of the things that uh, I picked up from uh, your columns that I never really thought about the importance of, and that's that you kind of compared the judge to Justice Robert Jackson. And in your commentary, you talked about how great of a writer Justice Jackson was and that Gorsuch, Judge Gorsuch, is on that standard. How important is it to have that communicative ability, that writing ability for a justice? Well, the court doesn't have an army. Uh, The court doesn't have the power of the purse. All it has is the logic of its opinions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, sure, if if you're not a a good writer, your vote is worth the same as, as all your colleagues. And You'll, uh, your, your opinion will uh, uh, still be uh, worth uh, the opinion of the Supreme Court. Uh, but in terms of the legacy, in terms of the, the weight of, uh, of certain rulings, uh, historically ones that are clear and more understandable and precise uh, have, the, have stood the, 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 the test of time. And so certainly the writing ability. And another thing that, that Justice Jackson uh, did, which I pointed out, is that uh, – uh, he resists um, executive overreach and, mm-hmm. and, and federal overreach of, of various kinds, uh, whether that be President Truman's seizure of the steel mills in, uh, in the early 50s or the internment of Japanese Americans uh, in, uh, during World War II. 
And so to those on either side of the aisle who are concerned about the direction that our politics is going, uh, I think Gorsuch is a, is a good pick to uh, save the republic in that sense. You know, I, I read a headline somewhere today, and I, I forget where I read it, but essentially said that getting uh, Judge Gorsuch on the Supreme Court will will greatly limit executive power. And I had to read through that because I didn't quite know the implication of the headline, but they were talking about the Chevron, uh, I don't know what you call it, Chevron decision, Chevron something. Uh, this could, is a doctrine, yeah. Yeah, could you describe that to us and, yeah, and yeah. This what is a would happen? Kind of exec- this is a different kind of executive action than, than signing an order about the immigration or certain things that uh, President Obama did with regards to implementing Obamacare. This is when an executive agency like, say, the EPA or the uh, uh, the Labor Department or, or, or the FDA, whoever issues a regulation, um, uh, interprets a federal statute, interprets a law that Congress has enacted. Uh, and how much deference should judges uh, give to that agency regulation uh, regarding whether it's a correct interpretation of, of the law, uh, of the statutory text? And Chevron basically says that Judges should defer to the agencies unless their, their, their regulations are completely crazy. That is, judges shouldn't bother to see whether the correct answer should be A, B, or C, but as long as the agency hasn't gone with X, you're okay. And a lot of things that Judge Gorsuch has written is pushing back on that. And indeed, there's a lot of uh, you know, things that Justice Thomas, Alito uh, have written in, in recent years, and uh, is, uh, a lot of academic literature are going in this direction, in pushing back on how much deference judges give to agencies. Uh, and so if they cut back on that deference, that means judges are checking the agencies, the executive agencies, part of the executive branch, and in effect rebalancing power back to Congress, forcing Congress to be more precise uh, with its legislation. You know, I, 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 I'm kind of ignorant on on how things work, but uh, if Judge Gorsuch was it's on the like Supreme Court, it's, it's how it's how a bill becomes a law. You know, okay. This is okay. Civics 101 that that we've gotten away from with government by bureaucracy. Uh, and so, if we had more judges that were less deferential uh, to the executive branch, um, I think uh, we wouldn't have a lot of the frustration that people have uh, with the government being unaccountable and, and things like that. Yeah, I, I just you know I, I just wonder how long it will take for a a justice like uh, Judge Neil Gorsuch to have that change and trickle down through the judicial system. I mean, is is that something that, that will happen in, in a relatively short time, or is that a it's generational thing? Decades. It's yeah. taken us decades to get to where we are. So even if we had five Neil Gorsuches, uh, you know, a majority of the court, that, that that's not enough. The court's not a self-starting institution. It doesn't right. rewrite laws and, and things like that. But as cases come in, and indeed as Congress begins to reassert itself, this is something that, for example, Senator Mike Lee of Utah, with his Article One project, Article One is a part of the Constitution that deals with the legislative branch with congressional powers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, there's been more of a move of Congress reasserting itself from these unaccountable uh, executive agencies. But it's, uh, you know, it's a multi-step process, and it certainly uh, will take uh, uh, quite a fair bit of time. Do you, you know, and I'm just sitting here thinking as you're talking, do you think a, a justice like this and a change in attitude, I mean, a, a terrific scholarly guy like this will empower Congress to 
uh, initiate some of those those changes rather than uh, a more liberal court? Um, it should because uh, it would prevent Congress from passing the buck to executive agencies as well. Mm. That's part of this story. It's not simply the administration, the uh, the bureaucracy kind of just stealing power for itself from Congress. It's that congressmen like to pass vague laws that uh, sound good, and then if bad things happen from them because the agency uh, interpreted them in, in a way that's harmful to people, they can say, oh, well, that's not what I meant. That's that bureaucrat doing that thing. But if oh. courts are honest and hold uh, the seats of the agencies to the fire and, and, and get rid of uh, uh, certain types of regulations, then that will um, mean that, that – or, or accept them, uh, as the case may be. That will force Congress to take more ownership of the legislation that passes and perhaps get rid of these huge omnibus uh, pieces of legislation that are passed that nobody reads and nobody really understands what's going on except for the lawyers in the bureaucracies that then use that as a uh, – as a basis for expanding their own power. We're speaking with Ilya Shapiro. He's a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute. Uh, Ilya, I got just a couple minutes left with you. I want to change gears a little bit and get your opinion on uh, President Trump's executive order on uh, the the immigration issue and what the 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 court system has done to kind of kind of play the game and and keep that from. Uh, being implemented. What's your what's your thoughts on on the executive order on immigration? Well, there's a lot of different parts to it. It's not simply a, a one sentence thing uh, banning all uh, immigrants or visitors from these uh, seven countries. Mm-hmm. Um, it it uh, it has a pause on refugees from all countries, and then it has a uh, pause for 90 days of uh, anybody entering the country from these uh, seven. Muslim-majority countries, uh, and the, the names of the countries aren't actually in the order. They're based on previous legislation or previous order that President Obama had signed, designating them as having a, a high number of, uh, of terrorists. Uh, and uh, there have been the way that this was rolled out, I think, has contributed to the legal mess. Um, the, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, the Justice Department, other agencies weren't consulted. Uh, the, the, the text of the order wasn't properly lawyered up. Uh, and so you had a lot of that. That's what ended up with the uh, demonstrations at the airports and emergency filings and things like that. So finally, what's what's up? Uh, what what, what uh, the Ninth Circuit heard argument yesterday? That's the the West Coast Appellate Court mm-hmm. um, was uh, whether to keep in place the temporary restraining order, what's called, meaning the the uh, the, the stay, the uh, the the temporary injunction against uh, the executive order that was put in place by a district judge last week. They will probably reject the government's appeal of that, and so it will go back down to the district court for further briefing and argument to get into some of the, the substance that, uh, you know, at this case, it's, uh, the, the, the courts aren't really getting into the underlying statutory issues about whether this is within the, the president's discretion or there's other parts of immigration laws about how the State Department can't discriminate based on certain characteristics, including national origin, for example, mm-hmm. for certain types of visas. So it gets kind of technical, but... Um, at the end of the day, I mean, this is this is, uh, the the order expires in 90 days. Right. I imagine this at best is a trial balloon, and we'll have some sort of more permanent policy put in place, uh, as well as uh, I imagine a le- legislative project, some sort of bill sent to Congress uh, to make something more permanent. And then the uh, the real uh, less crazy, perhaps, uh, political discussion will will begin 
uh, and if there's any litigation, it's that uh, after the 90 days that will eventually uh, come to the Supreme Court. This stuff that's going on now, I don't think the Supreme Court will will, will end up hearing it just because it's a, such a short, temporary pause. Right, right. We've been speaking with Ilya Shapiro, Senior Fellow in Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute and Editor-in-Chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Uh, Ilya, once again, this has been a, a real treat for me. I appreciate you taking some time away from your, your family and, and giving us a little bit of your day. Uh, look forward to uh, chatting with you again soon. Yeah, my pleasure. Take care. I appreciate it. Have a good evening. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Okay, so let's spend a little time talking about economics. There was a, a couple exchanges, whatever you want to call them, uh, at a town hall meeting on Obamacare uh, this week where uh, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders was there. Ted Cruz, I don't know if he was there or not, but he had a reaction that we'll touch on. And uh, Bernie Sanders lectured a small business owner uh, about her ability to provide health care for her employees. But it was very demeaning. It was very, uh, he was talking down to her. Now, this lady's in Fort Worth, Texas, and she employs between 45 and 48 people. And she keeps it at that number because if she goes over 50, she's got to provide Obamacare. She has to provide insurance. So she can't expand. She's limited in her growth. And the profit margin she has is very thin. She's not a wealthy person, so it's impossible to grow her business because she could not afford the health care. So she asked Senator Sanders, how do I grow my business? How do I employ more Americans without either raising the prices to my customers or lowering wages to the employees? Now that lit Senator Sanders' fuse, apparently, and... uh he had her clarify twice that despite owning five salons, they don't provide health insurance to her employees. Finally, he responded, let me give you an answer you will not be happy with. The senator started. I am sorry. I think that in America today, everybody should have health care. And if you have more than 50 people, I'm afraid to tell you, I think you will have to provide health insurance. Now. She pressed him on the original question, how to expand the business and pay for the insurance. And he said, my guess is that one of the problems we have is that maybe somebody else in Fort Worth who is providing decent health insurance to their employees, and they are in in an unfair competitive situation regarding you. He declared, wagging his finger at the poor woman, you can compete and maybe charge lower prices in business while they, on the other hand, may be providing decent health care. In other words, telling the business owner that she's greedy and she's cheating because she's taking more money for herself. She had two devastating responses. One, I think you'll find the profit margin in my entire industry is about the same. In other words, it's hard enough to make money in hair salons that no employer would be able to easily provide health insurance. And secondly, she doesn't have insurance herself. 
Bernie Sanders shook his head in disbelief. Uh, he couldn't understand how a successful evil capitalist didn't have enough money <clears throat> to buy health insurance for herself or employees. Now, this is important that we understand this, that people understand business. I know exactly what this woman's going through. I know exactly. And she could make more money, make more profit, be able to provide health insurance for herself, maybe be able to provide it for her employees if she was allowed to expand. There, there's something in economics called an economy of scale. She might have been able to add five employees without adding hardly anything to her overhead other than salaries. Overhead is, is what they call fixed cost. You have one employee or 50 in that building, the cost of renting the building is the same. So you get an economy of scale by having more people. If there's room, I understand that. You can't pile them on top of each other and that kind of stuff. But to me, it illustrates how ignorant these people are of business. Never had to make payroll. Never had to pay the light bill. Never had to negotiate with suppliers. Never had to call your customers and get them to pay you. They haven't paid you in 30, 60, 90 days. Never had to deal with any of that kind of stuff. And yet they think they know what's best for us. They put us in the category of greedy business owners. Well, you know what? She employs 45 people. How many people are on Bernie's payroll where he's responsible for paying them, where he's responsible for generating the income to pay them? None. None. He uses taxpayer money. These people do not understand business at all. Do not understand. I just read this story and I thought, man, this is so illustrative of how ignorant these people are about how business and commerce works in this country. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Commander Kurt Lippold, United States Navy, retired. He was a commanding officer of the USS Cole when it came under suicide terrorist attack by Al-Qaeda in the port of Aden, Yemen. He's the author of Front Burner, Al-Qaeda's attack on the USS Cole. And currently he serves as president of Lippold Strategies, LLC, a consulting firm specializing in executive leadership development and long-range strategic planning. Commander, Happy New Year, and welcome back to An Economy of One. Happy New Year to you as well, Gary, and thanks for having me back on the show. I appreciate it. You know, we, we talked, oh, I don't know, five, six weeks ago or so, and we, we was talking mainly about uh, the next commander-in-chief coming online and, and what you felt about that, what you thought the troops might feel about it. And I had a lot of questions about... Uh, you know, Iran and and some of the stuff going on over there. And uh, so I wanted to have you back because it 
it seems funny to me that, you know, the Iran, uh, I don't know, treaty or whatever you call it with uh, John Kerry and and uh, President Obama, it seemed like Iran was was uh, giving us the impression they were really getting beat up and we were going to win on that. And then they come out after President-elect uh, Trump comes in line saying, nobody better mess up our, our trade agreement or our our treaty with you on on nuclears. I, is that telling us that they kind of got the better end of the deal on the, the nuclear contract there? Well, I think what everybody is doing worldwide, whether it is the Iranians, the Chinese, the Russians, and others, is they're trying to stake out what they think is their turf in the international community and send a signal to the incoming commander-in-chief and president, Donald Trump, that they don't want to be trifled with. And I think in each of those cases, uh, President-elect Trump should take a look at it, determine what is in the U.S. national security interests, and then act accordingly as he should, depending on what needs to be done to safeguard our interests around the world. Now, you know, you're you're in that side of the equation uh, from, you know, what you know about the cabinet picks and and, – you know, uh, some of the tweets and, and attitudes he's putting out there. Um, are you getting a better feel for what kind of a, a commander-in-chief? Is he going to be the guy carrying the big stick in, in the world again now? Uh, I think what you're going to see is a commander-in-chief that in many ways is going to be reminiscent of Ronald Reagan. Uh, wow. When you talk to the people that have been in there, Clearly, uh, President-elect Trump is very engaged on a variety of issues, whether it is the economy, whether it is the military, whether it is overall national security policy. And I think that you are going to see a commander-in-chief in the military side that is going to put people in there that he expects to do that job, that to do it well, to follow the uh, basic guidelines and his idea for his vision for the future of this country. And I think especially today we saw with uh, General Mattis uh, testifying before Congress that uh, it was a superb pick and that uh, we are going to be very lucky as a nation to have him in there as our Secretary of Defense. Don't don't you want somebody, a Secretary of Defense, whose nickname is Mad Dog? I mean, it, it, well, <laughs> I, I, I will be honest with you. Uh, I know General Mattis in full disclosure, and um, he is not exactly fond of that moniker uh, <laughs> while he does live with it. I mean, you you want to have a guy like that in your corner if you're going to get into a fight somewhere. Right. But the reality of it is he is probably one of the best strategic minds in our nation today. He clearly understands the importance of civilian control of the military. And for all those people that worry about a former military officer going into that position, I would stop and say what you're really saying is you think that senior military officers have become so political they can't be trusted any longer as civilians. And I think in General Mattis's case, that's absolutely not true. Well, if I ever have the honor of meeting him in person, I won't call him Mad Dog to his face. I mean, I, I, I'll make sure uh, you know, I think I think Mr. Secretary, hopefully, or a general, would work just great. Yeah. and I, I recommend that, Gary. Yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. <laughs> now, that being said, okay, the guy's very knowledgeable. Uh, he's a good guy. Everything I've read about him, uh, I like a lot of his quotes. You know, that that are out there. Um, what do you think? 
What, what do you think maybe the top two or three things he needs to do in a short period of time to start changing the momentum of the world's opinion of of us and our, our strength out there? Well, I think the number one thing he, thing, and he touched on it briefly today, and I'd be paraphrasing his comments, but he said that we need to rebuild our credibility in the world. And that if we as the United States say we are going to do something, we stand by it and we do it. Mm-hmm. And it should be well thought out and we should think about it. I think he is going to look at the infrastructure that is currently supporting the military right now and figure out, do we have what we need, where we need, properly man-trained and equipped in order to safeguard U.S. national security interests across the globe? And if not, let's prioritize and start getting that, and if necessary, go to Congress, get more money, ask the American people for that money, tell them why we need it, develop a strategy for it, and go do it. So I think that in reality, those are the key things. Rebuild our credibility, assess where we stand with the equipment, the men, men, women that are serving our nation and the equipment they use, and making sure we understand what the strategy is and that we have what we need to defend our country. You know, speaking of, of equipment, it was interesting to see uh, President-elect Trump and his, his comments and reaction around, um, I, I think it was Boeing that, that is making the the Air Force Ones and how much they cost. And if anybody knows what a uh, a great big airplane costs, it'd be Donald Trump. Uh, do, do you think that uh, he's likely to bring some sanity to the, the, uh, the, the, the use of money in equipping our military and that kind of stuff? Because we've all heard the stories about, you know, $800 hammers and, and $500 toilet seats and, and that kind of stuff. I get the impression that that while Trump isn't a micromanager, uh, he might be uh, fairly fiscally conservative when it comes to, to spending money. My goodness, with 19 plus trillion dollars in debt, I certainly hope so. <laughs> but I think what he, you know, I, I think what he is going to look at the military and do, and especially these defense contractors, is start holding them accountable. I mean, we have a bloated bureaucracy in the Pentagon that I think unfortunately starts with the admirals and generals today. I mean, Gary, I think I may have mentioned it in a previous show, but in World War II, we had over 4,000 ships and about 100 admirals and fought that war to victory. Mm -hmm. Today, I've only got about 275 ships, but I have over 400 admirals and senior civilians overseeing the Navy. It is absolutely upside down. We need to have a massive reduction in the bureaucracy. And what we need to do is start getting responsibility, push further down the chain of command, turn over to the contractors and say, look, this is what we need built. Go build it. Mm -hmm. And if you don't build it, you're not going to get paid. And rather than creating an environment for the contractors to keep coming back and saying, oh, but we've got this great improvement. Oh, we've got this great software improvement. Oh, we can build a better widget. You know, it follows the old maxim. Sometimes perfection is the enemy of good enough. Right. And every once in a while you have to say, we can't afford to do that. We need more rather than quality. We need quantity rather than quality. Start pushing it out there because we can no longer afford to have the perfect airplane where we can only afford to build one. Right. Well, and that reminds me, Katie, uh, my producer, pulled up an article and 
put a little hand note on there to to uh, maybe mention this to you. She she gave me an article on the the Zumwalt class, essentially the the uh, stealth destroyer program, and I forget when that was started, mid '90s or something. And it seems like that's been been uh, uh, kind of a, I, I won't say a boondoggle, but it seems like the the overruns on that have been tremendous. And uh, it, it, I mean, I don't know if you can tell me anything about that, but what about that kind of program? Is that an example of of what you're talking about as far as the the perfect being the enemy of the good there? Well, you know, Gary, if you were to cut me with a knife, I'm going to bleed blue and gold, and I love my Navy. But in the case of the Zumwalt class destroyer, I will tell you, it is an absolute debacle. There should be admirals that should be fired, reduced in rank, fired, and go home. Because, quite frankly, that ship has left the building yard. The Navy has accepted it. We've spent over $4 billion building that ship so far, and it hasn't even it hasn't even turned on the combat system to shoot a gun, to shoot a missile, or do any of those tests. That's how that is how far behind that program is. And the Navy will tell you all these wonderful things that it's capable of doing. It may do those someday. But the reality of it is they are trying to pull the wool over the people, American people's eyes, in that that program is behind schedule, over budget. And what's happened is the, the people that have been in charge of it, we promoted them rather than holding them accountable for the shortfalls. And the contractor just gets more money thrown at it. Yeah. This is unacceptable. See, and I, I think that's part of uh, what the people are tired of is that kind of story. I mean, we want the best for our our military men and women. I, I don't mind being taxed for certain things, and that's one of them. I, I, I don't care. We, we don't pay them any money for the sacrifice they and their families make. And then we see, you know, $3 billion overrun on, on a ship that doesn't serve our military and isn't serving our, our national interest. I mean, I, I think that's what some of us citizens are, are just really tired of that kind of stuff, you know? And you, and you have every right, as do every one of your listeners tonight, Gary, to be upset with that. We're going to spend almost $14 billion to build three of those ships. Wow. And the Navy will say, well, they're a great test platform. Well, flash back 25 years ago, when the Navy was getting ready to build the USS Arleigh Burke and the Ticonderoga-class cruisers and put the Aegis weapon system to sea, we took an old ship, we converted it, and we did all the testing on an old ship. We didn't have to spend $4 billion to build a new platform to test out designs. And I think what we're getting so fascinated with is that when you have almost 80% of the admirals that retire go to work within the defense industry, it is becoming this self-fulfilling prophecy that they don't want to make controversial decisions while they're on active duty because that might jeopardize their employment prospects. Right. And we, we have got to stop that. Absolutely incredible. Commander, i gotta got to take a quick break. Can you hang on for a couple minutes? I'd like to talk a little bit about Iran and, and uh, some of the activities that uh, they've been taking the last few days. Can you hold with me for a minute? Absolutely, Gary. Be delighted to. I appreciate it. We're talking to Commander Kurt Lippold, United States Navy retired. We'll be back with him in just a minute. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun.
back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. We're spending a little time talking to Commander Kurt Lippold, United States Navy retired. He was a commanding officer of the USS Cole when it came under suicide terrorist attack. He's also the president of Lippold Strategies, LLC, a consulting firm specializing in executive leadership development and long-range strategic planning. Commander, I wanted to, uh, we got a few minutes, I wanted to talk a little bit about Iran. It seems like almost every day now uh, I'm seeing something on the Internet, some some headlines about uh, Iran. And two of them I wanted to touch base with, uh, one that I thought would be near and dear to your heart. We had a, a U.S. Navy destroyer that had to fire some warning shots at some uh, fast attack boats coming at them in the Straits of Hormuz. Is, is, uh, what, what goes through a commander's mind? What goes? I mean, uh, does everybody remember what happened to you and, and uh, they react? Well, I think it's, it's a little more nuanced than that. Um, the bottom line for every commanding officer, Gary, is that they have an inherent right under both U.S. and international law of self-defense, which means they can take any action they deem necessary to defend their unit. They don't okay. need to ask permission from higher headquarters or anyone else what they need to do. Years ago, Gary, probably 10 to 15 years ago, warning shots at the Iranian Republican Guard Navy used to occur all the time. I mean, it would happen several times a month. Oh. Now, because of the sensitivity in the region, because of 9-11, the attack on USS Cole, and now the politicization of that region because of the Iran nuclear agreement, people are much more sensitive to the U.S. anytime we do something like that. So the fact that we are firing warning shots, I think good on the COs, that they're recognizing a potential threat and they're willing to take potentially lethal force actions to warn others do not cross or I will shoot you because I deem you to be a threat to my unit or my ship. So I think that they're doing exactly the right thing. And I don't think we're going to see any uh, uptick when it comes to the Trump administration. The last thing we want to do is give the Iranians an excuse to back out of this nuclear agreement, even though there are problems with it. You know, and and I, I was thinking about that because uh, you go back uh, during the campaign and, and even a little bit after uh, the election, uh, President-elect Trump, uh, you know, he, he doesn't mince any words. He said if uh, Iranian vessels that harass our Navy in the Gulf, we'll shoot them out of the water. I mean, does uh, what, what, what kind of an attitude, uh, does that attitude from your commander-in-chief help uh, our, our men and women in, in service or not? I think that, you know, that kind of campaign bluster is one thing. It is another thing now that he is the commander-in-chief and is responsible for those very lies that he orders into harm's way. Okay. Those commanding officers ultimately will answer to the military chain of command overseen by the civilians in the Department of Defense. I think that they are going to continue to do business just like they're doing now. I hope that they know that the commander-in-chief will now have their back, mm -hmm. that they know that they are not going to have to be risking their lives and their careers by taking those kinds of warning shots, and that uh, if ultimately an Iranian vessel not just harasses, I mean, harassment, hey, we get that all the time. That, right. that, you know, I'm not excited about that. But if they truly threaten a vessel, and the U.S. is in a position where in order to feel safe, they need to 
use lethal force on that vessel, that they're going to have the full backing of the chain of command when that happens. Yeah, I, I think that's that's critical, and I think the American people see uh, that difference in attitude uh, at, at the uh, commander in chief. One last thing, uh, Commander. I, I uh, and you know I, I read everything and I I take everything with a grain of salt. So I wanted to get your opinion on this, but I saw several headlines today that talked about. Um, I guess us, the United States, sanctioning or even initiating the transfer of uh, 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 a lot of metric tons of uranium to uh, Iran. Uh, what, what's the truth behind that? Are we we giving them the raw materials for for weapons, or is this not weapons grade stuff? Uh, Definitely not weapons-grade stuff. And I think that we are giving them the material that was allowed under the agreement under the certain conditions and how it will be used, how it might be, uh, you know, processed into medical isotopes and others. And I think that you're probably going to see that that material is going to be very tightly controlled. We are going to know where it's going to be stored, under what conditions, who has access, and what they're doing with it, because they're going to be able to break down the radioactive isotopes that will enable us to identify it. So I'm not necessarily concerned about that, but nonetheless, we need to make sure that every safeguard is in place with that agreement, because it's not now that I worry about, Gary. It's the 10 years from now when the Iranians have developed that breakout capability and shortened it from what now may be a year to the future 10 years from now. Who Mm -hmm. knows? That breakout to a nuclear weapons capability might be down to weeks thanks to the Chinese and the North Koreans. And that's when we really have to be careful. You know, it's it's truly a a totally different paradigm out there, a different – different world from a danger standpoint and uh it 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 always it always helps me it helps my listeners to talk to someone like you that represents uh the inside attitude of the military and reinforces that we got the the best people there commander i really appreciate your time really appreciate your service you're a great american and i can't wait to talk to you again soon Well, Gary, thank you for the honor and privilege to come on your show and have an absolutely wonderful discussion with you about some of the real national security issues that are affecting the future of our nation. So thank you to you as well. Thank you. And and, then we'll talk again soon. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.